0: My name is Bear Suragusa and this is the Hunting Hound Podcast presented by W Hunting Supply. Join us as we go deep discussing hounds and everything hound related with the men and women from around the globe who've dedicated their lives to hunting with hounds. We ask them about the game they pursue, the breeds they run, and to get their insight into what it means to be a modern day houndsman. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Leave us a comment and subscribe wherever podcasts are available. All right. How is uh what what time is it there, Lloyd?
1: It's just a little after 10, 10.07.
0: Gotcha. Is it full is it full blown fall there like it is here in Norway?
1: Well, it is fall. It's very colorful right now, but we're approaching the end of September, and I have yet to have a frost here, which in, in my lifetime I've not seen that previously. Normally August would give us some pretty significant frost so it's That's great for my tomatoes but it's kind of frightening for the long range i think what yeah. climate change can mean
0: yeah no i it's it's funny it's the same here it's been an unusually warm and dry autumn to be norway so you know i i, I haven't been here nearly as long as you've been up you know up there in the up but um I've uh, I've not experienced in the soon fifteen years that I've been here that we haven't had a frost by this time. Usually we get the first frost in August, right. and uh, we still haven't had it. It's yep, been, that's it's frightening. Been strange. So, <clears throat> but I wanted to. Um, I guess we'll just jump right into it. What I for the the people listening to this podcast who probably aren't going to know who you are. Anybody running dogs, the sled dog is going to know who you are, but the houndsman may not. Um, tell us a little bit about, about yourself, Lloyd.
1: Well, you know, I just celebrated my 73rd birthday on Sunday and it was a great one.
0: Oh, congratulations.
1: Lots, lots of good folks. Matter of fact, I had, uh, um, a father son team visiting and, and that was real fun for me because their late father, Jack Tucker's late father used to visit me quite a bit. And they're all houndsmen.
0: These
1: guys were bear hunters and cat hunters from the Northern lower peninsula. And you know, that was their passion, no doubt about it, Mm. you know? So, um, it, it kind of jives with what we've got going on here, but they just came for a short visit and had a nice one. So,
2: yeah, that's
0: great. That's great.
2: Happy birthday. (laughs) Thanks. You,
0: you're, um, I don't know if I can call you a houndsman, but I I will absolutely call you an eminent dog man. You've been, you've been working with dogs for a a long time now, and you've mainly within the dog mushing world. Is that right?
3: Yeah. You know, I got
1: my first sled dogs in uh 1979 i guess up in um the north shore of minnesota where i had lived then but previous to that i had always had dogs of one sort or another hunting dogs springer spaniels labrador retrievers mm-hmm. um and hunted them hard you know and sure. uh, i'd done that and then i happened onto an ad in the paper for a five dog team for sale and and I bought them up in Grand Marais, Minnesota, or just outside of there, from the place where uh, the renowned Tim White now lives. But I bought from Jim Stevens owned that place at yep. that point. got five dogs, uh, five sled dogs, and a sled, okay. and started my mushing career.
0: <laughs> gotcha, and never looked back because you still have no. you still have sled dogs.
1: I do. I just have a few now. We sold our main racing team, my late wife and I, almost six years ago now. And we kept some of the older dogs. And so I I have nine sled dogs left here right now. And that's down from 90 in the years when we were racing hard and traveling quite a bit, you know, raising puppies and so on. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a retirement home for us, all of
0: us sure yeah that i mean that makes sense we're we're in kind of the same boat here where we're we're down to i guess we're down to 12 now oh yeah after uh after being up towards i think at the most at the most we ever had was 48 sure um and it's it's uh yeah it's i don't mind it it's it's nice to have a little uh not have the pressure not have the uh the stress of the whole thing just be able to go out and enjoy it it's a different a little bit different speed than what i've done for the last 20 something years (laughs) it's nice to just go out and enjoy it for the sake of the dogs not feel like i hear you get anywhere so so you you got started with dogs in the in the late 70s were you did you start racing right away
1: no i used my sled dogs um, to guide trips in what's called the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness sure. in northern Minnesota. Yep. And, and that's a non motorized area of uh, 1.1 million acres where you, you can travel in the summertime by canoe and portage. Mm-hmm. No wheels allowed, no motors allowed. In the wintertime, no snowmobiles allowed. So oh, cool. I used my dogs doing that just for fun at first. I had traveled in there skiing in and fishing lake trout and camping for quite a few years. And when I got sled dogs, I thought, boy, this'll this will make my life easy, you know. And <laughs> and of course, um, you know, when in not too many years you end up feeding and taking care of many dogs, that that changes. It, it becomes right. work intensive. But I spent 10 years traveling there. And within a few years, I started guiding trips in there. And Mm-hmm. For for a dozen years, I guided five to eight day camping trips in the Boundary Waters with sled dogs.
0: And were these? Um, we're going to get a little bit into some of your later your later dogs. But were were these um, Siberian Huskies, Malamutes, or were, were these, these were Alaskan Huskies? You they were, were
1: Alaskan Huskies. Actually, a couple of the dogs came right from. Joe Reddington originally, the Stevens had acquired them. And I had some okay. great, yeah. some great, really hardworking dogs. And uh, it wasn't until much later that I really learned to appreciate that, you know. But they were they were bred for long distance. Sure. And not too long, I got a a full-blooded Siberian husky from another musher there that was originally bred by the um famous or infamous harris dunlap depending on who you
0: talk to sure you know. sure <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh kip Kark. and that was a also a really great hard-working dog but i maintained a quite a small kennel i got up to about a dozen or 16 dogs and stayed at that level mm-hmm. uh, because of finances i lived back in the bush for 17 years there with no electricity running water anything like that hauled water from a spring. Wow. Um, so I lived, that was a period where I lived pretty close to the bone, you know, with my wood heat and right on the edge of the wilderness, or some people would say in the wilderness. Sure. Yeah. Wow. And, that's, uh, that's, yeah, a, so,
0: that's cool. That's amazing.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that, uh the dogs quickly became a passion for me and, And I rubbed elbows, of course, with some longtime racing people, Tim White and Mark Nordman,
2: Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. um,
1: you know, a couple of the names that are most well-known.
0: Sure. Um, yeah, Charlie
1: Jorgensen. Yep. Yep. um, A few others like that. And so um, I picked their brains. I didn't live quite close enough to have the benefit of training with them but i live close enough to travel there and over coffee um sure. pick your brains
2: sure
0: sure that makes sense when um when did you start racing cuz we're going to we're going to kind of yeah transition into i i want to talk to you about your race dogs and and what kind of got you into um some of your some of the things you did a little later on what what got you into racing in the first place
1: well i I raced my very first race in 1990, which was a bear grease 10 dog race. At that time, they had uh, the main race, which was a 500 mile marathon. They had a 10 dog race, which was 130 continuous miles. Sure. And then they had a six dog race. In addition to that, I raced the 10 dog race, my very first race ever. And I prepared for that as best I could by training dogs out of my place, but I had never been around other dog teams and stuff. I was, I was a bit bewildered as were the dogs, but we raced and, uh, I had to learn how to pass dog teams. Um, we started dead last in that race and, um, leaving grand Marais climbing a hill within a few miles, it came upon another team. And Della Zappa was her name. And, and she very graciously helps me mm-hmm.
2: pass her.
1: And then we went back and forth a little bit. And then finally, I was able to continue on and passed another team and so on. Now, these are dogs I had used in backcountry travel for years. Sure. But they were kind of bewildered that there were other teams around and that we just kept going. So within about 10 miles, We had come upon a few other teams and had difficulty passing them, but it was getting progressively better. And then we came up to Devil's Track Lake, which is 10 miles long. You check in at one end, sign the papers, and Mm -hmm. out we went across the lake. And I noticed a number of people. I mean, the trail was marked adequately, but it's nighttime. And there were a lot of people having trouble keeping their dogs on the trail. They're yelling, gee and haw, and there were people going all sorts of different directions. Mm -hmm. Well, I had backcountry dogs and lead dogs that you could drive like a car. Gee and haw meant just that on a trail, off a trail. And we streaked up the 10 miles of Devil's Track Lake, and I passed, I don't know how many dog teams there. And I thought, well, I'm getting pretty full of myself here. this is. Pretty cool. <laughs> this is one thing that <clears throat> is working out for me, and then right. uh, we continued through the night, passed a few more teams now, dogs not having much issue with that, got to our first checkpoint, which was uh a sawbill road crossing, and that was just one where you ordinarily signed in and out. Sure. and and from there it was another 30 miles to finland where there was a mandatory rest well being a totally rookie racer i really had no idea what to do so i stopped my dogs well i thought well it must be time to try to feed dogs and stuff well i hadn't fed my dogs on a trail before and i'm struggling to get food in them which was a mixture of meat and oats and a little bit of commercial. Food at the time. They didn't want to eat too much. Okay. And then I get word as we're partway through this that we had come in leading that race. We passed everybody. Oh, wow. And I was bewildered and just wasn't sure that was the right information.
2: Right. Wow. That's, That's amazing.
1: Yeah. And so I thought, goodness. And meanwhile, another racer came through and passed us while we were resting and went to the finland mandatory rest checkpoint so sometime later i pulled out went into finland and found out i was second into that checkpoint Mm -hmm. and so at the mandatory rest we'd go from there to the finish line to harbors which was some bit distant from us and As it ended up, my, uh, my competitor would leave an hour ahead of me, so that wasn't going to allow time to actually race, but I did leave an hour later and continued down the trail towards the finish line and got into the finish line at two harbors, and everybody cheered me enormously saying we had won the race Okay, because <laughs> no one got there ahead of me. Wow. And and you had, you uh, hadn't
0: passed any teams.
1: I hadn't passed any teams, huh. and uh, and so come to find out, mm. this was an area that I was real familiar with. I knew where the turn into Two Harbors was, and there was a small sign there. And I had made that turn, and and the other musher had gone by that without recognizing.
0: Uh, okay. Yeah. That
1: turn, and so he. He missed that turn, and so after a little bit, Dr. Peter Sapin, who was the judge, came down and explained to me what happened, Mm -hmm. and um, we decided between us that, you know, he should win that race because it really wasn't marked adequately, and that I would be second place, and that was fine, and since I believe, I think there was no purse money, actually, and so that, you know, right away, the dog mushing gave me an interesting story.
0: Sure, that's a yeah. that's a great one. Yeah. And that was in nineteen ninety. That
1: was nineteen
0: ninety. Yeah. And then it wasn't more than was it six years later that you started your dog food company? Is that correct? Was that nineteen ninety? Yeah,
1: actually we produced our first bag of dog food in nineteen ninety-eight. But okay. uh, you know the evolution of that was you know, I raced a little bit for a few years continued to guide trips mm-hmm. but raced just a little bit and then uh eventually you know not too many years later i was having some success in the mid-distance racing and and you know and and some glaring non-successes also i should say you know very right inconsistent. <laughs> but it was uh it was good enough so um Sven Engholm came to visit me at my little remote cabin.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. He's and a legend got, over here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, I got to know him and got to be friends with Sven. And he wanted to race. I did a ride, but to do that, he um, wanted to lease a team from me to run Bear Grease sure. 500 as part of as one of his qualifiers. Then his plan was to continue on and do a get the following year. Sure. Which which he did. Well he um he did a great job. We did exactly that. He raced my dogs, finished um third in the Bear Grease which was right where that team should have finished, just yep. behind a swingly team and ahead sure. of another swingly team actually. And so um did a fabulous job with those dogs as it should be no surprise to any Norwegian.
0: Sure. Yeah. Oh, and he's uh, he, yeah, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so that was a, kind of an interesting interlude. And uh, um so I and huh. I learned a lot, you know. I showed sense, some of the things I was doing, and, and so often when you get among really elite people in any sport but dog mm-hmm. mushing especially they're so very open yeah about what they're doing and they're so willing to share information and he was exactly that and he helped me a great deal going forward okay. in my racing career
0: gotcha gotcha yeah because sven i mean I, I don't expect any of my listeners to know uh sven Engholm has won the the longest race in europe the longest sled dog race in europe i think he won it 11 times
1: yes i believe he's
0: it. yeah the finnmark slip he's he's won that more than any other person so his his uh people might not know who sven engholm is but they'll know who mr finnmark slip is because that's what everybody <laughs> calls him he's uh, a well well-known guy he he, it's funny he's uh he's interesting i I talked to him actually not oh it's probably more than a year ago but it was a while ago it was a little while ago um and he uses his huskies and has trained a couple of them to hunt moose because we hunt moose over dogs here sure so he hunts moose with some of the dogs right off of his team he'll he'll go out with one of those and and they'll bay up a moose and he'll uh he'll harvest his moose for the year yes super interesting guy
3: yes
1: he is
0: yep okay so that was um was that visit part of what got you to create kind of got the got the ball rolling uh, the cogs turning and and got you thinking about some of this nutrition stuff
1: no that was actually a couple years later i um subsequently i had started a relationship with uh my late wife Mary and and uh I then moved in November of ninety-three to um the UP of Michigan Upper Peninsula of Michigan with Mary we got married mm-hmm. and so I spent my time here then within oh I think the following year I got acquainted with Dr. Arlie Reynolds at sure. at a um, sled dog symposium, and we got to be very, very good friends. Arlie was living in Ithaca, New York, at that time, and was mm-hmm. a professor at Cornell, and and uh, was into performance nutrition with dogs, and and he had a colony of sled dogs himself, and was a a, a racer himself, but he did. A lot of it's research on other dogs, other breeds of dogs also,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, on inclined treadmills and so on, and soon came to be recognized as probably the top person in the world for performance nutrition for dogs.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so,
1: so I had the benefit here in the Upper Peninsula, which is known for a lot of snow. We average a lot of snow here right where i'm at about 220 inches a year on the average wow
0: wow yeah that's a lot of snow
1: <laughs> and uh um marley <clears throat> would come with a friend and bring his sled dogs to train for the racing season and spend a week or two with us and we would train dogs and eat vast quantities of food and then you know that during the day we created a few of the world's problems, and then during the evening, over pie that Mary had made, we would solve some of the world's problems. <laughs> um, and actually, those meetings were how we started towards, you know, a formula that uh, of a, a commercially produced dog
3: food that would do what a lot of
1: the um, meat based diets that we're using currently were Cause at that time I was eating a lot of fresh meat and, sure. and a high quality kibble yep. as most everybody was adding some vitamins and minerals and some other things that went in. There's quite a potion really. Right. But, uh, you know, Arlie said, you know, he had done research for different dog food companies and stuff and None of them actually embraced a complete formula that totally went all in on uh, on performance. Simply because the margins weren't there for mainstream type dog foods.
0: Okay, and sure. So, the, so, it was, the, was it too expensive to produce. That's right. Yeah, sure. yeah. Okay,
1: and and then subsequently too expensive to sell. So right. Um. Anyway, over the evolution of a few years, I guess it was May of 98 that I produced the first bag of Caribou Creek Gold, which was a formula that he and I had put our heads together on. Sure. It took me almost a year to find a place that could produce it, and that was one that specialized in fur food manufacture. Previously, sure. used a yep. lot of fresh yep. meat products Absolutely. Stuff that makes stuff in their food, yep. and uh, and then I didn't do that with any thought of selling food at that point at all. I did it for my own use. And then there were a few local people that kind of knew the source and they wanted some. So I sold a little bit to them. And then it, it kind of ballooned from there by a couple years later. I was selling quite a bit of dog food in
3: Alaska. And that just Sure,
0: sure. Huh. That's really interesting. I remember the first contact I had with that dog food was in two thousand and three probably. Three or four. And that was up on Mendenhall Glacier out of Juneau. We were doing uh we were doing uh short trips with tourists off of the cruise ships, the Alaskan cruise ships, um with sled dogs up on the glaciers all summer long. Sure, and they were feeding Caribou Creek, and I remember getting up there and being like, "Well, where's the meat?" Right. And it blew my mind at that point that you know I I'd been into sled dogs at that point for five or six years. It blew my mind that they were not feeding meat, and I I, I'm thinking that this was, you know, to cut transportation costs or something like that. And and you know I was I was I I went into it really skeptically. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you, and, and you know I. I was expecting these dogs to start to struggle as the summer progressed. Um, Not knowing anything about the food or you just thinking that, you know, dog, these sled dogs, they can't, they can't survive off of just kibble. That's just, I mean, everybody knows that. And then throughout, throughout the summer, these dogs worked their butts off all summer long and their coats just got nicer and nicer and their feet were just fantastic they were nicely muscled they looked you know they exuded health which is what got me it's what got me interested feeding that food up on the glacier got me interested in this in working canine um nutrition and um it's what got it's what got me to talk to you the first the very first time because you know what Where I got my start, you know, there was still this. There was still this talk about, you know, you you needed to feed with the with the polar dogs. You needed to feed more fat to keep so that they wouldn't get skinny because they're working so hard. But you wanted to feed a lot of carbohydrates so that they had the that they had the energy and you know the the glucose in their muscles to keep them going. But you didn't want to feed too much protein because that would lead to liver, you know, kidney failure, renal failure, and then. You know, I looking into it a little more, reading, contacting you, and talking a little bit to Arlie. I suddenly realized that maybe some of these things weren't. Maybe that wasn't accurate. Maybe, you know, what can you can you talk a little bit about that? Did you find that some of those those things were were inaccurate? Because I I think a lot of dog mushers, and I know a lot of houndsmen today, or the people that I've talked to, um, th- those those things still kind of float around in the you know in in the
3: ether there yeah it's um
1: there's a lot of people you know i mean people still talk as you mentioned to me about carbo loading for dogs and stuff and yeah and yes that's been debunked scientifically some time back and i mean in all breeds of dogs sure um, you know dogs run on fat I mean, that's that's what they run on. You know, that's the fuel that they use when they're conditioned over distance to be able to utilize it. And protein is tremendously important. You 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 know, the number you don't want to fall below 32% protein on a dry matter basis. So um if if you take a typical uh commercially produced high protein food, which might be a 30% protein, 20% fat food, but that's also usually eight or 10% moisture Mm -hmm. that that comes out as something over 32% protein, 32, 33% protein on a dry matter basis. When you remove that moisture from the equation. So sure. Right. um, Right. Yep. Yep. You know, um, but at any rate, there's lots and lots of research available on the amazing internet now about studies that have been done, and you can follow that through not just Harley's League, but you know, performance nutrition things. Now, a high-protein diet and a high-fat diet is exactly what most dogs need to perform. Now, there are some dogs that might have renal issues that you don't want to feed a high-protein dog to, but those are probably not dogs that you're using in performance-type things. And a high-protein diet will not create renal issues. If a dog has previously renal issues, it will exacerbate problems, certainly, but that's rare. That's just rare
0: my my understanding from talking to uh, talking a little bit to Arlie and talking to um you know and, and doing uh, i am by no means even approaching expert here i'm i'm a i'm a rank rank beginner, but it's an interest of mine it has been for about twenty years my understanding is that the thing that creates kidney and liver failure um that people have maybe misinterpreted as a protein or a nutritional issue was actually a um was actually over overheating or, you know, intense exercise sort of past where, you know, where the, where the muscles started to break down, where the dog started to get things like, you know, um, and, you know, uh, myopathy, things, things like that, um, where you get that sort of really dark colored, angry urine and, um, they, they go into renal failure. Um, you know, what, what fascinated me was that I would have thought that there was a big difference between sled dogs, which have been, you know, bred up in the North and, you know, eat a lot of fish and a lot of fat and things like that. I would have thought that there was a major, major difference between them and say, a you know, a, 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 a greyhound or a dry land, you know, a dry ground lion hunting dog from, you know, uh, New Mexico. But it turns out that there's, Uh, uh, A a standard hound, you know, a a beagle or a a blue tick, what you know, whatever, is much, much more comparable to a sled dog than it is a greyhound, you know, if for no other reason than sort of the percentage of body mass that's that's muscle. You know, a greyhound has, you know, the average muscle mass on a greyhound, a a racing greyhound is 57% of its weight is is muscle whereas a, a, a an alaskan husky a trained alaskan husky the average is 40 43 percent of their weight is muscle sure you know it's it's going to be there's going to be different nutritional requirements obviously but it was one, one thing that i started thinking quite a bit about after i got into this houndsman thing when i started hearing people saying that well there was a big difference between the alaskan huskies and 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 the hounds was well wait a minute you know, especially when you get into some of the, you know, the distances, I mean, heck, even I did rod now, but, um, you know, when you get into the middle distance and especially the sprint guys, you know, they're, they're running some pretty high percentage hounds there. You know, we're, we're not talking Malamutes anymore. We're talking, we're, you know, we're talking an eighth, a sixteenth, a quarter, even some halves, uh, you know, pointers and and things like that. And, you know, they're, they're feeding their dogs a, a, a very high fat, very high protein diet without having any of the the, the sort of kidney and uh, the kidney issues that, that that people seem to be worried about because you you sort of transitioned from some of the 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 long distance middle distance stuff to uh, with the Alaskan huskies to you you had some higher percentage. You, you, your dog's got a little bit houndier when I when I met you. At least you had some floppy ears in there,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had uh did my first breeding to what is commonly called the uh Eurohound, Yep. Now, um, in 2000, actually, I'd gone up to Alaska um to visit, and uh, Mari Rado had a had a dog that, um, had come over from Norway. Um, and I got some pups from there. And then I did a, uh, um, split breeding with Arlie Reynolds. We bred to Ego Ellis's dog, Mike. Yeah. We bred one of uh, his bitches or actually it was one of Mari's bitches. And, uh, we split a litter of dogs. And so I got, uh, three pups out of that ram being the name of a dog that became one of my main leaders. Oh, sure. Um, subsequently. And Renee was his litter mate sister. Ruger was another one that was in the main team, those mm-hmm. three, and they raced for me and they were three ace then hound.
0: Okay. Yep. 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 Wow. So, I mean, when, when we're talking about racing just for the, you know, uh, what are what are we talking about in terms of distances during a day and and that kind of thing? You know, are we are we talking like greyhound racing where it's you know a a short distance at absolute max output, or are we talking, you know, a a sort of mi- middle ground between going slow at, over a very very long period of time versus you know a sprint? What are what are when you're talking about racing? What are you talking about? Um,
1: well, you know, the focus for Mary and I became. Um, stage racing or what in some places would be called mid-distance racing um, the okay. Wyoming stage stop race uh, the old Oregon race the adip Boy 300 which yep. were at, at the time I raced the Wyoming race those stages varied from about 30 plus miles to a little over 60 miles each day with you know eight stages over the course of a week run much like the tour de france bike race you know sure each yep. day resting and um stuff so there were some pretty long runs in those days and then doing races in northern manitoba or the northwest territories yellow Life was always a favorite of ours and that was three 50 mile days on great slave lake in those days
2: sure
0: Gotcha. Okay. So, I mean, that, that's fairly comparable to, you know, what, what some of the, some of the big, you know, what a lot of us find on the GPS at the end of the day, you know, um, you know, 50 miles that, that would be a, that would be a pretty crazy day, but, you know, a lot of the times we'll end up doing, you know, somewhere between say 10 and 30 miles, depending on what we're chasing. And, you know, they may, they may use six or seven hours to do that you know it's it's uh it's pretty uneven terrain you know they're not running you know there's probably some differences there but um it seems like the 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 metabol the um the metabolic requirements or the the metabolic changes that they would go through throughout uh sustained exercise like that would be fairly similar to what you're talking about
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think
3: so. I think they'd be very comparable. Okay. You know, I think,
1: uh, yeah, people will find no difference. Well, I have, you know, I have that nine sled dogs left here, but I also I have two Labrador retrievers that are eight years old. Mm-hmm. I've got a soon-to-be 16-year-old English setter, and I still hunt my English setter. She's slowed down considerably, but so have I. Wow. But, you know, and they've, you know, every one of those dogs has been raised on my Caribou Creek, you know, and, uh, and I, you know, I guess I can back up a little bit. When we first started producing the Caribou Creek Gold, I continued to mix meat in with my dog food because that's what I had always done. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until several years later, racing out West, at first at the, Oregon race in two thousand and three, the three hundred stage race, where we had tremendously warm temperatures. I mean, up to sixty degrees during the day, and the meat I had on board was melting, and the dogs' appetites were such that they would, they would ignore the meat and kibble mix, but they would eat dry kibble,
3: and they would drink plain water
2: okay sure
3: and so since that's about the only thing
1: that they would eat that's what i did and you know i was on edge that whole time because i had not done that i thought oh this is this is scary they're not eating their right food
3: you know and um by the
1: end of that race I thought maybe I'm onto something here. You know, and we went from there and raced the Wyoming stage stop. And I went with an all kibble diet then and had a good race. And then mm-hmm. subsequently, I said the next year, I'm doing that. I'm going all in, jumping off cliffs, build your wings on the way down kind of thing. We're going to feed <laughs> right. and water and do that. And, uh, we went along and in you know in pretty short order in five we we won the Wyoming stage stop with uh, Hernan Hernand who now lives in
0: yeah, he's over here now
1: yeah, uh, there had come up from Argentina, he and his uh wife Vanessa Kanash, had come and yep handled yep. for me a couple different seasons, wonderful folks
0: they are they're nice folks they live they live not far from us, so only yeah. I think it's three or four hours from us.
2: Yeah. Over here in Norway. And, uh,
0: that, uh, the, world, the world's small. I couldn't believe it when I bumped into him here. I was like, oh my gosh, what are yeah. you doing? What are you doing here? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, he did a great job racing for me that year. He was actually second in the IFSS World Championship, which was out at Oregon in a last minute um, comeback, Buddy Streeper passed him from about a 20 minute behind thing buddy had kind of learned finally during that race how to pace his dogs sure <laughs> and came and eked out a win and so we were second that year and uh um at oregon and then went on to win the wyoming stage stop with their nan there and uh so that was uh you know that was a great racing season sure and i, yeah. I went on that same year to race the dogs myself up in Yellowknife. Um, and this was in 06, I guess, when I raced in Yellowknife. That was the following year.
0: And, and that's like you know, three I times 50 race. race. Is that right? Yeah, 350 50 miles, miles a day for three days.
1: Yeah. And I won that race on Great safe Lake, which, you know, at that time, at that time, I was the oldest ever to win it. That's since been surpassed by my friend. Grant Beck first, Richard Beck, and then Grant Beck. Sure. Well, they used yeah. to be my friends, but now they went by me, so I don't. I'm not so sure.
2: <laughs>
0: but I right. might still be the tallest ever one.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: gotcha. That's cool. Uh, one thing that fascinates me it, it fa it's always fascinated me about the the dog mushing. But it, it it's something that you know we I ta- I've ended up talking a lot to a lot of different houndsmen about. Um. When I started putting some time, you know, when I, when I, when I switched, I, I, I had a a, sort of a a health issue that made it so that the, the, the sled dogs was, became difficult for me to do, but I needed to stay in the dog world somehow. Sure. So I got into these, I got into these hounds and, um, you know, a question that, or a conversation that I've had an awful lot with, with, with the houndsmen who are what i like what i like about the houndsman and uh you know there's there's a lot of dog mushers that are like this too but there's also a bunch that are not and you know is is that you you have the, you have people that are in it just to have something to do and then you have people who are in it for because they're dog men and women through and through and. Uh, some of these people have, I've, I've talked to them and they've, they've had just sort of these amazing, this amazing ability to read their dogs and to read other people's dogs. You know, they can see a dog streak by them at 20 miles an hour crossing a road. And that's the first time they've seen that dog in three hours. And they'll be able to tell you exactly how that dog is doing. You know, and one thing that, we've talked quite a bit about is, is these multi-day hunts where you need to go out, you know, you go out and you, you hunt and you go out the next day and you hunt, you go out the next day and you hunt. And, you know, the question being then, what are the dogs looking like on the third day? And a lot of times, unless you've got a very, very good houndsman who has their nutrition down and everything, not it's not necessarily going to be the same dogs on the third day that are up there in front, baying up, you know, putting a bear up a, up a tree as it was on the first day. Because those, that first day, maybe those dogs, you know, maybe it was the nutrition wasn't totally on point, but they were a little bit better trained or maybe they just had a little bit more of that explosive energy. But, you know, from my dog mushing days, I sort of naturally gravitated towards wanting that dog that on the third and fourth day of a long hunt was uninjured, still trucking, still still able to get the job done. And it seems like a lot of people share that, you know, sh- share that desire to have a dog that can, that, that has the stamina. And, you know, it, so much of that is training, but so much of it, I mean... You know, it's, it seems like it's 50% training, but 50% nutrition, you know, and, uh, you talked a little bit about, you were feeding, you know, you were in 19, back in the sort of mid to late nineties, you were feeding some commercial dog food and some meat. Um, but with, during your conversations with Arlie, you found that there was, not a dog food out there that was going all in on that high performance just because of the bottom line, the margins weren't there. Yep. Right. How did, what was missing and how did you guys, how did you get to the point where you could make that happen?
1: Well, you know, basically it was, I went in to that first production thing without any thought of selling dog food. I didn't, I didn't, about that i was trying to make my life easier and get the best nutrition for the dogs that i had
0: sure sure and, sure sure. so you were you not, you were looking at it in terms of total performance not bottom not a bottom line
1: right yeah i wasn't yep. evaluating it on um
3: the financial end at all i mean
1: i had the opportunity to put together a dog food that was geared right towards performance mm-hmm and um you know subsequently did that but i had no thought whatsoever of selling a bunch of dog food i mean i had early on i had a few local inquiries about it and did sell a little bit but you know that really developed over the course of the next few years because people learned about it learned its history and then started to see the performance you know and then it took off from there and you know and there's been you know several people that have embraced it in in alaska in the mushy community especially but you know um some hunting dog people bird dog people and houndsmen also i sell to some of them
0: yeah i saw i saw that pat burns and mary lake uh uh vouched for your food on on uh on your website and they they, yeah, yeah, well, they I ran a- they ran labs as i recall Right. Maybe yeah, it I have do. a
1: yeah. woefully inadequate, outdated website, so we won't go there. But, no, but no. <laughs> there's plenty of plenty of people that have um, done that. Now it's still it's high end dog food, and it's relatively costly per bag mm-hmm. to buy. But uh, you know, people choose to buy it, and um, that are competing hard. And I'll and I'll back up a minute. You know when you When you talk about nutrition, where you say, "Well, you know it's fifty percent or fifty percent training, I think that how I talk about that stuff is that it it's like you erect a building and at the foundation mm-hmm. is if you're looking for performance, first of all is the genetics, what are you breeding but then sure. Sure. if you're Going to get that dog, hope to get that dog to the limits of what it is genetically. You have to have the nutrition on board, and so that's a couple of foundation things. Sure, everything builds off of that, and and from there, once you have that in place, you have the opportunity to make all sorts of mistakes.
2: (laughs) Oh sure, (laughs) (laughs) And, and
1: so you know your training and everything comes into play there. But then I'll say again that these individuals that you look at in the dog game or whatever facet of it. But I think beyond that, just anyone who's passionate about whatever endeavor they are engaged in. They're passionate about. Mm -hmm. And we certainly know lots of dog people that are like that. But then it becomes, what can I learn? Because learning is absolutely the most exciting, rewarding thing that can happen to any of us. And, you know, um, not everybody embraces that in the same way. Some lessons come hard. Some lessons come with resistance. You know, some lessons never come on board for some people sure <laughs> but, i mean it's just that's the nature of it but when you surround yourself with people that are really passionate about the sport and they're anxious to learn you have that opportunity to learn
0: too absolutely i 100% agree agree with you and it was <clears throat> it's, it's funny you should say that it was the is the only reason that i agreed to do this podcast uh, the not 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 this episode, obviously, but but the podcast in general, when I was asked if I wanted to do it. And the only reason I said yes, was not because I felt like I had anything to add myself. You know, I've been training dogs for a bunch of years, but I feel like I am. Every time I go out, I'm learning something new. And what excited me about the prospect of being able to do a podcast like this was that it gave me the excuse that I felt like I needed to call and talk to people like yourself to people who knew more than I did it gave me the opportunity the excuse I needed to talk to people who I could learn from and it's uh, it's what keep, it's what keeps me it was it's what keeps me in the dogs in general you know I, obviously I love the dogs I love training them but you know, part of what I love about it, I think one of the things I love the most about it is that I am constantly learning. I I never get to a point where I feel like I've got a handle on it, and this and it seems like the second I start to get to that point, something comes from out of left field and just blows my mind and shows me that I you know I'm sitting there with you know <laughs> my head in my hands thinking, geez. I don't know anything.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. You know, when you're uh, that whole learning thing, that lifelong process of learning. And so often it's then it's. Incremental changes that can be breakthrough things, you know, from sure from the outside it doesn't seem like anything's different at all for somebody, but when you're engaged in it and immersed in whatever you're doing, you can see what's going on and you can see and sense these changes.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, in the, in the dog mushing world, I think more than I would be willing to, I would be willing to say more than any, other dog related sport it's we still get those changes that come in and just kind of blow everybody's blow everybody away you know it's i I, rem, I remember the skepticism when you know uh tim white came out with the qcr runners yeah and then i remember the skepticism when the you know the 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 rex runners and and the the, the uh, aluminum runners came out you know So just being like, this is never going to, this is never going to last. And when people started breeding in other, you know, not just breeding Alaskan huskies, when they started breeding in these, you know, I, 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 I've been in this long enough to remember the, how people laughed at Martin Boozer when he showed up with the little, you know, what people thought were these little houndish kind of dogs versus these big furry bruisers that everyone else was running. And it's just, you know, it, it's these small, these slight adjustments that have just ended up being groundbreaking. And I keep thinking that we're going to get to a point where it's just not going to happen anymore. Or we're going to get to a point where, you know, people aren't going to be able to find that new thing that's going to knock, that that's going to revolutionize the sport. And it feels like every couple of years, I'm proven wrong. Something else comes along that just you know, it, sometimes it's a fad, but sometimes it becomes just part of. It becomes an of a kind of an of course thing that you know the new, the the new people in the sport. You know, they come into it not knowing the history, not knowing where we where we actually came from, how far we've come. And I mean, I've 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 been running dogs for twenty five. Twenty five years, and you know. Uh, we had come so long by the time I started running, and we've come so long since I started running. It's 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 amazing to me that it keeps developing the way that it does. Yep.
3: But um, on a totally personal level, I wanted to ask
0: you about a litter that you did, and the reason I wanted to ask you about a, uh, is the gen- is the genetics aspect. You you mentioned the genetics as sort of a pillar of building this, you know, this b- building a good competitive team or dog or, or, and and you did a litter that created dogs that won, that, that finished in the top of sprint, mid distance and long distance races. And as I recall, that was a litter that you did together with Roxy, was it Roxy? And
3: Didi and yourself. Right. And that created dogs that finished at the
0: absolute top in Iditarod, at the absolute top in the open class sprint with Roxy, and then at the absolute top in middle middle distance with you.
3: Yep. Um,
0: you know, the, 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 the breeding for performance aspect of things, it it might be a little bit more complicated in the hound world where a lot of people are trying to kind of stay true to us, to a purebred, but can you talk a little bit about that, that litter, what you, what you did to get to that point, why you did that litter and, and some of the factors that went into making them what they were?
3: Well, um,
1: of course, Roxy writes a legend. Sure, you know. And I first became acquainted with her when I went to Alaska in '93 to run a Iditarod, and I stayed with her and her then husband Charlie Champagne. Sure, um, doing food drops there, and then um, I went down to the um, fur rendezvous with them, and I had some nice sled dogs i was right i was training
0: you know that's a that's a uh, three-day sprint race is that right yep yep
2: yep
1: rendezvous a famous alaskan sprint race one of the most famous three about 25 27 mile days
2: yep yep you know
1: down some real tough trail conditions and a lot of distractions Mm -hmm. and uh and so on so i had been Training my own dogs and then doing food drops, and they were gracious enough to let us stay there. My good friend, the late great Jerry Porter and myself mm. crashed with them, and then we did the food drops, and then we went down to Anchorage and dropped those off. and then uh, um, we got to handle Ferroxy at the rendezvous, which was such an amazing. Thing I mean I had seen their dogs and and I had some nice dogs that were bred more to what was then the distance type stuff Myron Anxman and sure and uh, Rick Swenson and stuff I yeah, had gotten sure. into that sure. through people that had traveled down to Minnesota and had some nicely bred and I had a very nice dog team mm-hmm. and I was pretty proud of them but I saw. Roxy's dog's race over the course of three days. And she won the fur rendezvous that year against, you know, top, top-notch competition. And and um, as, you know, the way she ran her dog team, you know, we got radio reports at several checkpoints along there. She never led the race early on in in any of those stages but she always came home hard and she won every day, every day of those, that three day race. And wow. I saw these dogs that she had. <laughs> and, and, you know, I started to learn about just uh, what synchrony was about. I mean, these sure. dogs were yeah. like, part of a racing machine I mean they were incredible incredible athletes and of course I talked with her and with Charlie you know about that and um you know then elected to uh, breed to some of her dogs and um you know probably the most prominent dog I saw up there Uh, during rendezvous for me at that time was a little bitch by the name of Mustang. And so, you know, breeding to dogs that either created that or were behind that, but I had learned one thing for sure. And that was trust Roxy. So I said, well, what should we breed here? (laughs) Roxy, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, we did just that, and and uh, I I had sent a Brit. Well, I did a couple different breedings with with Roxy and uh, her dogs there, and uh, in every case that that worked out well. And these were what were termed Alaskan Huskies at that time. You know, this was 1993. Sure, but you know, in their background. Earthright had bred all sorts of different things, maybe setters, maybe spaniels even. We don't, yep. we don't even really know. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, and yeah. it had worked out so that they had some really top-notch racing dogs. And we then had one litter, the one you're talking about, that was split. And
0: um, was that with Heather Miller, am I remembering that correctly?
1: Yeah, yep. Yeah. Heather Miller was bred and uh um we I I sent her son was down giving a talk and I sent a dog back with him mm-hmm. to go up there and I think Didi ended up with that dog eventually, one of those dogs.
2: <clears throat>
0: that and, could be um, Dee, Dee ended up with one from that litter named
3: esther okay and esther got uh she had an accident as a young dog and lost a leg but was
0: so was it was such a good dog in spite of that would run after the team and keep up for kind of absurd distances despite having one you know one less leg to push off on of, that dd bred her and created really the foundation of her team those last few years that she was really competitive up there. Sure. Um, so that 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 Esther dog was after. Th- it was from that litter that um, I'm trying to remember the names here. There, my memory is failing me at this point. It's um. um Ken Anderson got some of those. Got a sibling and built his entire team off of that. That
3: sibling. Um, anyway, yeah,
0: it was. Uh, they were f- phenomenal dogs. I bought. I, I ended up buying uh, one of Esther's offspring from Didi, and built my kennel around that dog.
3: Yeah.
1: Good and- move
0: it was a it was a good move i uh i had a a son on the way my first child on the way and a lot of a lot of stuff going on but i took the plunge and you know a little bit like you said building your wings after you jump <laughs> and uh yeah never never regretted that I, it was uh it ended up being the one of the foundation dogs of of my kennel and i, I ended up combining it with some um some blood from lance Mackey, who a lot of people are know who that is and and sure, um sure. and uh have been i've never looked back it's it's been the foundation of of my kennel you know we get a lot of snow here and i've got you know 10 miles of a gradual uphill to get to the top of the plateau so we do a lot of trail breaking we put in our own trails because a little bit in the in the same you know like you were talking about that the uh, the wilderness area where you were running, we're not allowed to run snowmobiles here. So all of the trails we need to put in ourselves. And I found that those were the dogs that could get that done. I found most, you know, a lot of dogs would, they would do it maybe for a year, maybe for two, but then they would kind of get to the point where they're like, you know, I'm going to, I'm getting fed regardless of whether I do this or not. So I don't think I want to do this anymore. Yep. But these, uh,
3: these, uh, yeah, the, the the Mackie,
0: you know, Wright Gilbertson dogs were uh, they 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 it it didn't seem like that crossed their minds. They hung in there.
1: Yeah, it's I think you know people talk a lot about breeding and what do they do and you know the, one of the easiest things around is to make puppies if you have a male and a female or access to one or the other if you just have one you know you can make puppies and you can make pretty good puppies right and and then if you study it and you talk with people that have really done it and that was the thing where roxy was such a tremendous help to me and what it's i subsequently did and landed on this, she was
0: she was a genius yeah or she is she a is. genius yeah
1: yeah she is and just uh just such a warm and wonderful person and, mm-hmm. and such an intense competitor. And she's demonstrated that again and again and again.
0: Yeah. L- let, me, let me just add something real quick there for, for, the, for the people who don't know. And that's going to be, mo- you know, most of my listeners are not going to know. Roxy had a really successful career as an open class sprint musher. I believe she was one of the first women to win the Open North American and the Fur Rendezvous, if if not the first woman to win. And she retired and then came back. You're gonna have to help me here, Lloyd. How many years later?
2: Twenty
3: years later, I think.
0: Twenty years later, and ran Arlie Reynolds' dogs and won the Alaskan Grand Slam, which is the the Open North American, the Fur Rendezvous, and the last one you're going to have to help me with, Lloyd.
1: She went over to Toke.
0: That's right, the Toke tr- Tournament of Champions. She won yeah. all three of those races 20 years after retiring with Arlie Reynolds' dogs. Yeah. She had and, you know,
1: and, and, and Arlie will tell you, of course, they were Arlie's dogs in name, but they really worked together on that kennel all that at times. She, she was retired. She spent tons of time there, trained dogs, helped Arlie a great deal because he often had to be on the road um, with his real job. I'll put quotes on that, you sure. know? And, uh, and so they that team was as much hers as it was Arlie and Donna's, you know? Sure. And, yeah, that, uh,
0: that, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true.
1: You know, just uh, it was so thrilling. To see that all develop, but, but at any rate, you know, at that time, when I was doing that breeding, what I did was I got a couple bitches from Roxy, Heather Miller, whom we've already talked about and Harper. Yep. And, uh, ended up breeding both of those, but those bitches I got were older at the time. Mm-hmm. They had raced in her winning rendezvous and or North American teams and at that age they'd already produced puppies that had also won on winning teams right so they're a proven product right there and sure. they come to me with all that experience young enough to do a little bit of racing yet young yeah. enough to breed and produce pups and and so that was the recipe then you had to pick the right males and i of course, went to, um, Roxy for the best advice on that and, and used that and, you know, went off from there. And that was, uh, yeah, it was, that was just a real fun time. I can remember when, well, Mary actually took a young junior musher to Alaska for a symposium one year early on. And she went up there and Visited with Roxy quite a bit and stuff. And then came back with Harper, you know, and that was like, Oh yeah. That's, well,
0: That's the oh, dog.
1: Darn, you bought a dog, you know,
0: that, that's, that's <laughs> the dog. That's, that's the dog. I'm um, you've, you've jogged my memory. The dog, the two dogs that were behind my dog. Yeah. Was Harper and Clyde.
1: Yep. Right. Yeah. And, and Clyde was out of, um, Oh help me, I
3: just like Mustang. Yep. Yep. So yep. Yep.
1: Yep. Yep. So that was a great
0: great That was uh you know, I've I've done a lot of research into genetics. It's an interest of mine. Um I I I have yet to find
3: a litter that produced
0: dogs that won the biggest races in all three disciplines yeah i, I mean it, it's not it's not happened you can go you can go to lines that have done that but you i've never ever seen another litter that has one a single litter that is one in all three disciplines it's it's a, that that was an unbelievable litter of dogs
3: yeah it was um,
0: yeah, no, it's, and the breeding thing is, you know, it's, it's, it's so simple, but it's so complicated at the same time. You know, you've got, you know, I, I have a dog here right now. He's, he is virtually everything that I want
3: in a hound, but
0: he, in his genetics, in his, in his immediate family and the family or, you know, his, his, his grandparents, et cetera, et cetera, he is the freak. Yep. He's the dog that is unlike any other dog in his gene pool. And they're all good dogs, but they're not, they're not good in the same ways that he's good. Right. So I, I'm not even really tempted. Obviously our, that, that's a lie obviously I'm tempted, but I'm not going to breed to that dog. I'm not going to breed on that dog because he is the freak in that genetics. I have very little faith that I'll be able to recreate him based off of the fact that there's nobody else in his gene pool that is like him. Right. So I, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's something to be said for, we've, we've I, I've had this conversation with a couple of other people in, in the hound, mush, you know, in the, in the hound world, you know, Jared Moss, and I've talked to, uh, I've talked a little bit to some, some other really good Ronnie Snediger and, and, and some other really good houndsmen out there, uh, about this, about breeding, breeding for what you're doing and not just breeding for what you're doing, but breeding for a dog that does it the way you want to do it. Right. And I think that that's so important that, you know, I, I had the opportunity to breed to a, a dog that had been on John Baker's winning team, uh, when he won the Iditarod back in 2010, Yeah. Le- 10, 11, something like that.
1: Yeah. Something like that.
0: Um, and, and I didn't do it. Um, not because John doesn't have, didn't have unbelievable dogs. Obviously he did, but it wasn't a dog that was consistent with what I had already going on. Right. And I didn't think that that dog was going to then turn around and, and, and make my pool of dogs as arrogant as this. And I'm aware of the fact that it's going to sound horrendously arrogant and I'm not meaning it that way, but John one doing something that I I'll preface it by saying, John one doing something that I'm not capable of doing. So to then turn around and breed to his dog, when I know that I'm not capable of recreating the circumstances around his win, seemed crazy to me when I could breed to somebody else's dog who had also won, where I felt like I was more capable of recreating those circumstances, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I, I, I think in the hound world, it's, it's the same. I think it re- really kind of regardless of what kind of working dog you're looking at, it's, it's something that people should kind of keep in the back of their minds that, you know, the, the, the best dog, the, the competition winner, the, you know, the, the grand night champion, the top lead dog, it's not necessarily going to be the dog, you know, that is going to improve your kennel. And it seems like that was something that you sort of tracking your dogs throughout the years. It seems like something that you were really aware of. That you, every time you did a breeding, it seemed to kind of give your kennel, you, you always seem to be taking steps in the right direction, which I found un, sort of fascinating when I, when I started paying attention to it 15 years ago. I was, I was fascinated by the fact that you came it seemed like every year you came with teams that were better than the teams
3: that you had previously had. Was that, you and I have talked a lot about
0: um, your training schedules. You had, I mean, you, you had some pretty revolutionary training schedules and the way you train your dogs. Was that, Was that part of it, or was was a lot of it breeding?
1: Well, you know, I think again, I just say that you you try things, you learn things, and um, the foundation is the breeding stuff. And so, there's no, you know, people ask, well, what's the thing you did? I mean, if you happen to win a race, well, what's the thing that you did? What's your secret kind of thing? Of course, there isn't any secret. You know, and they could just as well ask if you don't win a race, what did you do? (laughs) You know, what did what what did you
0: do wrong? What
1: did you what did you do wrong? How did you screw that up? And often I have a ready answer to that because it's one detail that I might have screwed up on. But when you're putting together a top performance, which you know I came to be for my own peace of mind, it's like. I felt if,
3: if we went to a race and performed
1: to that dog team's limits, if I hadn't been screwed up too many things, if we if I had performed to that dog team's limits, I had to be happy with that and then go forward from there. Sometimes that meant to win, but sometimes it didn't, you know, I think I, I talk about that. Oregon race that where Buddy eked out a a win there. And at that point, I mean, you know, he he made a huge comeback. And of course, they're legendary in the sport, the Streepers.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: They had a superior dog team. And and leading up to that, we had made some better decisions than them on pacing and so on. And um, that... Put us in the lead until that last day, but buddy and Terry embraced um what they learned right through that race, talked to different people mm-hmm. and made the adjustments they needed and and uh you know buddy came with that huge comeback and won
0: right right yeah i mean i i, I as you said earlier, I think that the uh, the thing that sort of separates the um the 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 decent competitive dog people from the hyper competitive dog people are is is that ability to learn as they go yeah and you know the Streepers have certainly been capable of that and shown many 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 times that they've been able to change with the times and make the adjustments that they've need to needed oh, to and em, 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 embrace the new you know, new technology or new, you know, new, you know, what, whatever. Um, but I think, um, you know, the, the, the nutrition aspect of all this has, has, it's changed so
3: much since, you know, the days where
0: they were feeding their dogs, you know, cereal and right. moose meat, you know, it, it, it really is quite a bit different. And, you know, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, that the, the work that you did with, you know, the, that you did to to create Caribou Creek Gold, the work that you did with Arlie to kind of sort of map out what needed the, the nutritional needs of these dogs is, is, um, you know it it's very easy to kind of take a step into modern modern day as a, you know from since nineteen ninety eight and be like, oh well, it's always been that way and the reality of the, the reality is it hasn't you know it was people like you and Arlie that that made it the way that it is today and you know i I, I hope that people understand that that we you know as houndsmen as dog mushers that we're we're standing on the shoulders of Giants here. And um yeah, I really appreciate that you came on the podcast, Lord. I really do. It was oh,
1: this is fun for me. But I, you know, one thing I'd point out was one of the things that Arlie did that was a breakthrough from a top-notch scientist. Mm. He was a guy that listened to the native folks in Alaska and learned about what they were doing to mm-hmm. feed their dogs in these extraordinary environments.
3: Absolutely. What
1: was this meat this stuff like that. And a lot of other people with his education and in his position were poo-pooing that, you know, and um, he embraced that in, in his research and Mm -hmm. he really took things forward then, you know, and, and uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. It is uh, it is amazing. I'm in. Uh, I am. I, I find myself frequently in awe of the people who have contributed so much, and have made, you know, in the case of, you know, yourself, in case of Arlie, in case of Roxy, um, you know, the the Lee brothers, all of these people who have made such huge contributions to the 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 dog sport
3: you know that um you know you
0: how humble you all are it's 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 it's, remar- it's remarkable to me you know in the in today's day of it, you know being instagram famous and everybody has their own youtube channel and things like that that uh that the the the, the real contributors are as as quiet as they are it's it's it, it's uh it's, it's remarkable to me Oh yeah. So, but we're uh we're up at about an hour and a half here, Lloyd. So I think I'll I'll, I'll let you get about your day. All right. I thanks a lot. Very very much appreciate you coming on. And okay. uh, I will uh, talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Man, I love that sound.